Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week we take two data points. We tell you how they explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor, talking from Berlin, Germany. Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist, as always, is with us from New York. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cameron. Okay, so this week, very exciting for us. We are starting a small mini-series of segments in the second half of this week's podcast. The series will be on uh, what we're calling life cycle economics. Basically, for the next four weeks, we'll be looking at the stages of life that we're sort of slicing up into four somewhat arbitrary segments, and we'll be telling you the economics of each of those. So stick with us. The second half today, we'll be talking about conception, which is a natural place to start, I guess. But first, as always, we're going to be talking a little bit more about the news, specifically Russia. So the news number for this week is 100,000. That is the approximate number of troops that Russia currently has stationed on the border of Ukraine. That has triggered fears of a possible imminent invasion, maybe one that's even targeting the capital of Kiev. It's the most urgent geopolitical crisis of the moment right now, culminating actually this week in a tense meeting between U.S. and Russian diplomats in Geneva earlier this week. The United States and its NATO allies met with Russian officials today in Brussels. The U.S. and NATO rejected demands from Russia Wednesday during talks aimed at easing tensions in Eastern Europe. What sanctions is the U.S. willing to impose? And are U.S. troops as part of a NATO or international force on the table? But the 100,000 troops that I mentioned uh, are also an economic data point, I guess in two ways. Uh, it's a sizable economic investment on its own terms by the Russian government, and it's triggered talk of harsh sanctions that could be imposed in the aftermath of an invasion. So all that got me thinking we could spend some time right now talking about the Russian economy more generally. So Adam, back to those threats of sanctions. President Biden has threatened to cripple uh, Russia's economy I mean, basic question, is that even in America's power to accomplish crippling Russia's economy? I mean, on the face of it, you know, you'd have to be a bit skeptical. I think this is deterrence talk. Um, America doesn't trade very much with Russia. 2012, America was still importing about $30 billion worth of goods from Russia per annum. By 2020, it was down to $17 billion. Um, America's exports to Russia are no more than six billion a year. That's barely more than America exports to Ecuador. The, the main vector of an attack would be by locking Russia's banks out of the electronic clearing system, the SWIFT system. And you could sanction anyone who did business with the Russians um, through that system. Another thing the US has apparently been talking about is slapping sanctions. So they sanctioned Russia directly so much as sanctioned firms that allowed American components or American intellectual property IP to be contained in goods sold in Russia. This would be an attack on the Russian consumer, if you like. 
Um, so those would be the ways to go. It would be complicated to implement those. It would be a big, um, it would have to be an effort that would apply largely to non-American firms, which is part of the sensitivity of doing this. You'd need to have buy-in from Asia and Europe. And above all, America would need to calculate very carefully what it was doing. I mean, one thing I think that's really out of the question is Iran-style sanctions. So an attack on Russia's major export, because that's um, oil and gas. And 40% of Europe's imported gas comes from, from Russia. So at a moment when, as we know, all the way around the world, energy prices are high, and in fact, the American government was lobbying OPEC Plus, which is OPEC Plus Russia, only a few weeks ago to increase production of oil and gas. It's, it's difficult to imagine America going for an all-out attack because the consequences would be to remove you know, one of the major sources of oil and gas from the world market. And the effect of that would be to drive prices up in quite an unpredictable way. And especially in gas right now, that could potentially be catastrophic in Europe. So none of that is happening, I don't think. Okay, so this clarifies a, a little bit, I think, what my next question was going to be, which is why we all refer to Russia as a great power. I mean, I get that there's historical reasons for that, but in some ways, the way you were describing the Russian economy just now sounded a bit marginal to the world economy. But then I guess there is an economic basis, I guess, for that designation as a great power. Is that fair to say? Well, absolutely. In the oil and gas sector, that's the thing. I mean, it's the number two or three producer of fossil fuels and energy in the world, depending on which market you're looking at at what moment. Depends on the scale of American production at any one time. And that's been the case for decades. And so removing that would be hugely significant. But that underestimates Russia's clout economically. After all, there's a reason it can maintain the world's second largest nuclear arsenal. There's a reason why its cyber warfare capacities are as ferocious as they are. There's a reason why it can maintain competitive fighter jets in the modern era, right? It has a very serious technological base, a population of 140 million uh, relative to GDP, which is uh, moderate by comparison with rich countries, very high level of education, at least in the current generations. So marshaled in the right way, uh, Russia, you know, has a heavy punch. It is not in terms of GDP, you know, a comparator with uh, the likes even of Germany or Japan. It's more in the Spain kind of a league, but it has qualitative edge in key areas that really matter. And in the broadest sense of the word, in the end, size does matter. I mean, it is the largest territorial state in the world. It's 17 million square kilometers. It has huge strategic space and vast resources of all types, not just oil and gas. So in all of those respects, it's a, it's a big player for good reason. Okay, I mean, you mentioned this vast territory, and it's something that President Putin likes to refer to as, as well, at least indirectly. I mean, he clearly wants the former Soviet Union, both on the eastern and western parts of Russia, um, to be a sort of sphere of influence for today's Russia. But that got me wondering, in economic terms, does that sphere of influence, I mean, this this sort of extraordinary relationship with these former parts of the Soviet Union, does that already exist? I mean, are those economies of successor states, including Ukraine, are those economies inseparable from Russia right now? Well, there's a thing called the Eurasian Economic Union, whose members are Russia, Armenia, Belarus, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and whose observer status members are Cuba, Moldova, and Uzbekistan. And they are, as it were, the group that is most closely conforming to this idea of, a, of an economic space 
Uh, even within that group, however, one has to one have to differentiate. I mean, um, Belarus is is truly deeply dependent on Russia um, for uh, trade. I mean, about forty eight percent of Belarusian exports go to Russia, versus twenty percent to Europe. Kazakhstan, on the other hand, is a completely different kettle of fish because it has you know globally marketable um, natural resources, oil and gas, and uh, those are shipped through Russian territory to a large extent, but actually go to markets beyond. So its two main trading partners are the EU and China, rather than rather than Russia. And this is a two way street as well. Russia pays for these relationships, particularly its relationship with Belarus is a sponsored relationship. Um, Moscow essentially subsidizes Belarus through the delivery of cheap gas, um, which keeps um, you know the furnaces on and the generators going um, in Belarus. So these are very complicated relationships outside that Eurasian group. Some of the Central Asian states are very heavily dependent on Russia as well. So Tajikistan in particular um, is hugely dependent on Russia for um, migrant uh, remittance income. But probably the one to look out for um, is Uzbekistan. That's the real prize. It's uh, 34 million people. It's half the population of Central Asia. It's twice the number of inhabitants as Kazakhstan. I mean, its trade is quite heavily dependent on Russia as well. The you know, numbers vary. Um, but if you're looking for, as it were, a bellwether of how Russia's sphere of influence, its economic sphere of influence is going, track Uzbekistan's relationship with the Eurasian Economic Union. Perhaps that's something we should keep an eye on in future episodes. Just briefly to follow up, I mean, where does Ukraine fall on this scale of relative dependence on Russia? I mean, Putin seems to refer to Ukraine as, as not a real country. Does he have something there when, when he's referring to the Ukrainian economy? It's, it depends on what area you're looking at. I mean, historically, the Ukraine's critical dependence has been um, on energy supply, so it needs Russian gas to get through the winter. There are ways of uh, avoiding that by piping gas from other pipes of the pipeline, other parts of the pipeline system. Russian gas transits Ukraine as well to a significant extent, so the relationship is two-way. And in fact, even Russia's military-industrial complex was heavily reliant for a while on sophisticated jet engines coming from factories in the Ukraine, because obviously these were once upon a time all part of the Soviet arms industry, the military-industrial complex. What we've seen since the crisis of 2014 is, is disintegration, so increasing separation between the Russian and Ukrainian economies. Uh, but even uh, now, it's quite difficult to fully disentangle them. And some of the really nastier inside politics in Kiev right now is precisely about the current crop of political leaders prosecuting the previous, their predecessors, who had to engage in various types of dirty deal with the Donbass separatist regimes, because those were the only places they could get coal from. Uh, to keep the lights on in in the rest of Ukraine. So, indeed, there is a degree of dependence, but it is diminishing over time. And willy-nilly, Ukraine is being sucked into or moving into a closer relationship with the EU rather than Russia. Okay, so so let's say Russia does end up invading Ukraine, and, and let's say it's uh, you know a pretty significant type of invasion, one that requires all those troops. Is this kind of war something that Russia can afford? I mean, what kind of expenditure would a war in Ukraine represent for an economy of Russia's size? It does depend critically on the kind of war they would uh, launch. 
Um, but the broad answer is that, yes, this is a, something that Russia could afford if it, if it was the priority of the Putin regime. I mean, Russia's GDP annually is about $1.4 trillion. Um, it has a foreign exchange reserve of $600 billion in foreign uh, currencies piled up from surplus revenue generated by the oil and gas exports. Um, it currently spends about $6 billion a year in the Russian-backed uh, Donbass region. About half of that is on the military expenses of maintaining that so-called frozen war. So if it wanted to ramp up from there, one could easily imagine it doing so. In Syria, where the Russians, of course, were intervening on the side of Assad decisively between 2015 and 2018, Yabloko, the Liberal Party in the Russian parliament, has actually done accounts on how much they think was spent there. And that kind of military effort probably cost the Russians about a uh, billion dollars a year. So you could kind of dose this, right? And you could you could just literally sort of say, we want to spend $20 billion on intimidating Ukraine and pick your um, armory to match. I mean, that's the most rationalist conception, but I think there is an element of just intimidation involved here. Once you got into a on-the-ground fighting war on a large scale with boots on the ground, it would be much more unpredictable. It would drag on. And this is one of the threats the Americans are making is that they're going to equip a sort of guerrilla stay behind force that will turn this into an Afghanistan style quagmire. And, and one of the grimmer numbers in the Yabloko estimates of the Syrian um, costs are that the Russian government pays um, the surviving families of killed servicemen dollars per death. So that too would have to figure in the calculation, because I don't think there's any doubt that a large scale invasion of Ukraine would be a bloody affair indeed, and not just for the Ukrainian population, but also for the invading Russian forces. Wow, yeah. I guess finally, Putin has been in power now for 20 years. Could you offer a verdict on him as a manager? I mean, how should he be assessed as an economic manager? I think the basic story, before we get into the quibbles and qualifications, which we have to get into, but I mean, the, to, to understand Putin as a phenomenon, you have to reckon with the narrative of recovery, right? So he comes into to office at the end of the 1990s on the back of the disaster of 1998. I mean, this is a moment, the nadir really of Russia's fortunes. After the pullback and the end of the Cold War in 89 and the collapse of the Soviet Union in 91, the, the real low point of Russian power is in 1998. I mean, this is a moment where Moscow appeals to the UN for food aid, where the Russian economy, a fully you know, nuclear-armed superpower, is more or less dramatically dollarized. Um, Russian society is being pulled apart by absolutely extreme increase in inequality with the go-go years for the oligarchs and the collapse of the Soviet welfare state. That's the backdrop against which Putin measures himself. And on a good day, the Russian public measure Putin. That's, as it were, what he stands for is overcoming that. So that, as it were, is the baseline of the narrative. And through 2008, nine, indeed, through 2014, you could even go further and say that Russia's growth keeps pace with places like Poland or Turkey in terms of constant dollar numbers. And then the story turns and the story turns well, when does it turn and why does it turn? And this is really the big fly in the ointment, the big question. I mean, how far has Russia really got a growth regime other than oil and gas? Because it's not surprising, after all, that Russia should have boomed in those years, because that's when oil prices go through the roof, and then they fall in 08, 2008, and then they bounce back again. 
And it's 2014 when the global oil market really collapses. And that's the moment also where Russia's growth slows down. It is also, of course, the moment when the Ukrainian crisis blows up and Russia is under sanctions from that moment onwards. And since then, Russia's growth has essentially, from terms of per capita income, has basically stagnated. And so that, I think, is really the question, uh, the longer term, the legacy issue is, well, sure, Putin presided over this recovery under favourable circumstances and imposed a fiscal discipline, a monetary discipline that's very remarkable by emerging market standards, hence this 600 billion pot that they've accumulated. Right? It's one thing to earn money through oil. It's another to actually save it because so many petro states don't and Russia has. But on the other hand, the question is, does Russia actually have a growth model? And that's where I think especially liberal-minded commentators are very pessimistic about Russia's prospects. It's a society with an aging population, the low population growth, if any, the educational level is not improving rather than the contrary. So there's a sense in which, as it were, Russia lived off its natural resources and in the world of climate change, decarbonisation, all of that, which will affect Russia very seriously because of its you know, giant natural exposure to climate change. Um, there are real questions, I think, about the long run growth. The regime has responded in 2018. It launched a huge investment program. But in a sense, the question is, is that just going to compound the existing structural difficulties? Are you pouring hundreds of billions of dollars into crony networks, inefficient public private you know, uh, uh, relationships that in the end don't generate sustained productivity growth? Those are the kind of questions that face Putin as he comes well, at least the end of his period of power is increasingly in sight, though we don't, of course, know when that point will come, whether it'll be 2024 or much, much, much later than that. Well, yeah, at the very least, he is also subject to uh, the natural life cycle. Uh, so he will be uh, one way or another leaving office. That's probably a natural segue for us to get to our second segment, which I, like I said, is on the life cycle and specifically on conception. So we will take a break and be right back. So the next data point is 15000 That's $15,000, and that's the going rate, at least in the United States, uh, for the medical treatment known as egg freezing. There's been a rise in elective egg freezing among women during COVID-19. So that's a procedure in the service of giving women the feeling of control over their fertility including the timing of, of when they want to have kids. I prioritized my career over my personal life for the last decade, but then I turned 35 in a year where I, I think we've all felt a little bit out of control as a result of the pandemic. And I recognized this was something I could control, making this choice. But it's also an increasingly popular procedure, and it's the heart of a booming startup industry in the United States. One company that specializes in this procedure claims that demand has doubled in the past year alone for this egg freezing. And this seems to me a good place to start our life cycle discussion. Of course, you know, before birth, there's conception, and that's an economic event all its own. Of course, we're used to thinking and talking about economic indicators relating to our respective generations' working lives, you know, unemployment statistics, inflation, all that stuff that we normally talk about on this show. But we don't usually don't give ourselves much of a chance to think about the economics of creating a new generation in the first place. And so, yeah, 
that got me uh, uh, thinking about conception. And I don't know, the question of whether someone is going to have kids, usually I think of that as a very personal question. Um, but Adam, why is it also a question that should concern economists and policymakers? I mean, why is family formation even an object of, of macroeconomic study here in the first place? I think basically because it's the foundation of everything, right? I mean, people's desires, people's labor. Um, it may be personal, but but they have general implications. Um, how many kids folks have is how many workers you have, how many consumers you'll have down the line. And how kids are educated determines um, the human capital that you have at your uh, disposal, so-called. Um, this is an economist's cons you know, construction <laughs> of the quality of labor. You know, if they are merely personal matters or just simply personal matters, that's kind of an index that you're living in a liberal system fundamentally. Um, to see an alternative view, you just have to look to China right now, which has basically been announcing a three-child policy. Right At the end of last year, the communist cadres got the, got the message that there was no longer any excuse for only having one or two children. If you're going to be a good follower of Xi Jinping's regime, you now aspire to have at least three kids because their duty is to contribute to national population growth. So it's pivoting on a dime because obviously from the 70s onwards, China pursued a draconian one-child policy with extraordinary intrusions into women's fertility. Um, and now the switch is flipped the other way. Okay, so that's good to know. When an economist looks at my kids, they see uh, human capital in, 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 uh, is one way of putting it. But just to clarify here then, I mean, obviously biologists will have their own answers here and, and doctors do too. But from an economist's perspective, I mean, is there an ideal time then for someone to have kids? Yeah, I mean, it's a balance between not interrupting the income flow of the parents, particularly the mother, and being in a place where a family can provide the child with the best possible launching pad in terms of stable and supportive background for, you know, as we say, the formation of human capital. So uh, teen pregnancy, which might be preferable from the point of view of reproductive biology, is very bad news economically. Um, hmm. You risk disrupting not just the earnings but in fact, the education of the parents, and in particular, the mother, and um, also then, of course, creating conditions in which the child itself is less likely to prosper. Only about half of teen mothers in the United States uh, have a high school diploma by the age of 22, compared to 90% of women without teen births. Teen pregnancy is incredibly strongly linked to, to poverty generally. Um, and... 63% of teen mothers end up in receipt of um, government support, public assistance within the first year of a child's birth. And children born to teens in the United States have considerably lower school achievement, enter the child welfare and correctional systems at much higher rates, drop out from high school and become teen parents themselves. So all of those indicators suggest a real cycle of poverty and disadvantage built into early pregnancy in our current system under prevailing conditions in the United States. So, I mean, Adam, it sounds like maybe some of the incentives are working out in this respect because the average age at which people are having kids is trending upwards. I mean, I do, I do think that teen pregnancy rates are also dropping in the United States and elsewhere in the West. But I wonder whether there's also maybe sort of constraints 
on the other side of this age range, uh, maybe we're getting to the point where people are having kids too late in life. Maybe they're hitting the biological limits, maybe the, of, of having multiple kids. Maybe they're having fewer kids than they would like to because of that. You know, what is the sensible policy response to that, to, to sort of broaching uh, beyond the ideal economic age range? Are, are there incentives that could work to make people have kids even earlier than they are? Yeah, there's really a big difference emerging globally at this point, um, not just between the total number of kids people have, but the average age of the first pregnancy for women. Um, and so for very low income countries in sub-Saharan Africa, like Mali or Niger, um, the average age of first pregnancy is 18. Um, whereas in rich countries, pretty much across the board, the US is no exception here. It's between 29 and 30 now for women. So it's it's there is a huge gap opening up there. And we can see it in our own biographies if we think about our own families. On the average, our parents and grandparents were having children significantly earlier than we did in our generation. Um, if you want to change this, you've got to change the incentives. If you want to change this for whatever reason, you have to make it cheaper and less dangerous for young women to have kids. Um because currently, as all of the data suggests about tea pregnancy, it's very dangerous indeed for a woman's life chances to have an early pregnancy. Um, and so you can do that by providing socially funded, socially financed childcare, by minimizing prejudice, by making decent housing available to young people so that they can establish themselves independently of their families, um, even if they if they have a child, or in fact, particularly when they have a child. And the societies which have done this most consistently and on the largest scale were, in fact, the state socialist societies um, of the 70s and 80s, once the East European states had escaped the post-war reconstruction phase, um, when they became quite affluent. East Germany, in particular, had an extraordinarily elaborate system about 90%, we think, of the costs of child rearing were covered by the state in East Germany um, by the 1980s. And that did have a pronounced effect on women born into those cohorts. So East German women tended to get married and have one kid early and then go put the child into childcare, which was fully available and unstigmatized, and then return to education. And that didn't interrupt their life courses very much. And it brought the uh, the age of first pregnancy way down. It didn't, however, uh, really fulfill the regime's ambition, which was to increase the number of children that women had. Um, the regime, as you know, bottled up as it was with the Iron Curtain, with the Berlin Wall, desperately trying to keep its population in and increase its population, managed to change people's lifestyle choices, but didn't manage to increase the number of kids that people, that women ended up having. So you can change those kind of parameters. You can do it on a large scale, but it's expensive. It requires a substantial devotion of you know, societal resources. And just to clarify, I think uh, uh, as, as far as I understand, when East Germany got swallowed by Western Germany, they got rid of a lot of those family policies from the East and then now kind of regret it, it seems. Uh, and they're trying to backfill these policies they got rid of because they realized they may have helped. Yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. The um, interesting story that is one element of the East German social system that has, in fact, exactly as you say, sort of recovered and been generalized. And the key element here is is um, childcare, early childcare, um, which was massively stigmatized in West Germany. It was thought of as the sort of you know the the, the cradle of totalitarianism um, because West Germany in the post forty five period didn't treat you know, a motherhood as simply a private choice. It was regarded as a social function. 
Um, it was a matter of, as it were, Christian democratic Catholic ideology that mothers, women should be mothers. And um, that meant that all of the burden of child rearing was privatized. And um, in the aftermath of reunification, at first, yes, the East German system crumbled. But then by the late 90s and early 2000s, in fact, West Germany was adopting um, a public right. And, and West German, German families in general now have a right to access to publicly subsidized childcare, which means the costs of child rearing in Germany are considerably lower than in the United States. And critically, labor market participation by women in Germany is now significantly higher than it is in the US. So this does have a payoff effect. It doesn't overall increase the number of children that German women have, but it's made it a lot easier for families to, to cope. I, I can attest to that, being one of the beneficiaries of cheap child care here. And yes, it does help. Um, but to return to the data point, that was the $15,000 it can cost for a woman to freeze their eggs for later use. Yeah, I mean, obviously now we have these markets that are devoted to helping people have kids later than they otherwise might have. And just more generally, I guess, devoted to, yeah, disrupting biology in the way that we're describing. I mean, this is really innovation and technology devoted to escaping some of the constraints that we've been discussing. But yeah, that got me wondering whether this sector needs heavier regulation. I mean, are some of the claims that they're making about being able to disrupt these biological processes? I mean, as far as I can tell, yeah, these freezing these eggs doesn't doesn't always work out. Do you think do you think more regulation is necessary in this in this sector? I mean, I'm not sure. I'm. I feel. I feel entitled to like pronounce on regulation per se. I mean, as a historian, it's certainly, you know, the latest phase in a truly dramatic shift. I mean, as recently as 2009, it was still regarded as a wildly experimental procedure with less than 500 women a year in the United States. Uh, undergoing it. And now we're talking about tens of thousands of people and it's being marketed very actively. I mean, and the terms in which it's being marketed are are really rather extraordinary um, and reflect, I think, you know, a critic would say the language of neoliberalism. I mean, the, one, of the, one of the taglines is own your own future, uh, and, you know, or grab your fertility potential or put away a healthy asset um, because, you know, one of the incentives is, is, to, is to take eggs from, from younger women, which, which apparently have a higher chance of viability. And the, and the scale of money involved is really non-trivial. I mean, IVF treatment altogether is, is a multi, is a 10 billion, 20, 20 billion. Some people think the market were maybe as large as 30 billion plus um, in the next decade or so. This is still small beer by comparison, but it's been seized on very significantly, I think, by the tech sector. There's this weird intersection between egg harvesting and egg freezing and fintech. So Sheryl Sandberg of Facebook was one of the early advocates. Many of the glossier tech companies offer their employees, their female employees, um, fertility services as part of their benefits package you know, you could think of it as some sort of dystopian work maximization strategy where Facebook, as it were, pumps you for your best years whilst allowing you to harvest your most fertile eggs for later use. I mean, it's a it's a kind of nightmarish vision at one level. But all of the evidence suggests, and Yale University has done serious research on this, that the vast majority of women who undergo this laborious and quite painful and to a degree humiliating procedure um, do so because they just simply haven't found the right partner to be with. 
So rather than thinking of this as the sort of final frontier of capitalist mobilization, of which there is certainly an element, and clearly, you know, if there's money to be made, there will be capitalists after that money. But I think the choices that are driving women to resort to this technology are above all personal. It certainly reflects a historic shift in the way in which personal choices, romance, the life, you know, the life of the heart and the body are associated with technology and big business. And, um, you know, the 21st century is going to be a pretty wild place, I think, in that respect. So I just do want to cite this this number because I alluded to it, and that is just that the birth rate from the UK's uh, Human Fertilization Embryology Authority showed that just 18% of the women who froze their eggs ended up giving birth, which is, again, another kind of constraint, you know, or, or sort of like burst the bubble of that illusion that, that one is completely in control. But in any case, we will be continuing these uh, life cycle discussions. The next one will be on uh, education, which comes after birth, obviously. So stick with us for that. That was another episode of Ones and Twos. My thanks, as always, to uh, my co-host, Adam Twos. And listeners, as always, we like hearing your feedback. Please email us at podcast at foreignpolicy.com, or you can also tweet us at Ones and Twos Pod. Remember, that's Twos as in Adam's name. That's T-O-O-Z-E. Ones and Twos is written by me, Cameron Abadi, and... Adam Twos. It's produced by Laura Rossbrow Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tady. And the executive editor of FP Podcasts is Dan Efron. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll see you back in your feed next week. 